Welcome to the Universal Blueprint, a podcast series on the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The UN created these goals to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. Every episode, we'll dive into one goal and bring an expert in to share their perspective on it. Together, we'll learn how to make these goals into realities. This podcast is brought to you by the United Nations Association Chapter at Northeastern University and is produced by Mihira Shimano and Elizabeth Yeager. Welcome back to the Universal Blueprint. My name is Mihira Shimano and I'm the host of today's episode SGG 14, which is on life below water. This episode was actually recorded before the pandemic hit in March, but was pushed back, so we're really happy to be able to publish this now. In this episode, we talk about SDG 14, focusing on the conservation and sustainable use of oceans, sea, and marine resources for sustainable development. Some of the targets that SDG 14 aims to achieve are, by 2025, prevent and significantly reduce marine pollution of all kinds, in particular from land-based activities including marine debris and nutrient pollution, and minimize and address the impacts of ocean acidification, including through enhanced scientific cooperation at all levels. In order to help us understand SDG 14 better, we're joined with guest speaker Dr. John Mandelman. My name is John Mandelman. I am, um, I've been at the New England Aquarium since 2002. Dr. John Mandelman is the Vice President and Chief Scientist of the Anderson Cabot Center. He focuses on research in physiological ecology and conservation physiology of marine fishes and works to directly inform fisheries management processes and policies. After conducting research for more than 10 years, John took over as chief scientist and director of the aquarium in 2016, when the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life was established. So my job is a technically um, the chief scientist and uh, vice president of the Anderson Cabot Center. Mm -hmm. So my job now, and, and I, I don't even know if you need to get into this, but you know I manage many other researchers. Yeah. I help fundraise for the Anderson Cabot Center. Um, I am the person in the leadership group for the New England Aquarium as a whole that represents all of our research and conservation work. Mm -hmm. um, so I am kind of the head of our entire research division. Um, so I went from running my own research program to helping to manage many other talented researchers doing work to try to help save the ocean. So thank you so sure. much for being here. For our first question, we wanted to ask, um, when talking about climate change and environmental impact, we attribute a lot of its um, world's e ecosystem to life on land, yeah. but around 70% of the world's oxygen is produced by marine life and marine plants. So why are oceans and bodies of water also an uh, important contribution to our ecosystem? It's a great question. So the ocean is, I mean, to put it mildly, everything. It's vitally important. Um, it's basically what we say at the aquarium is it's basically the climate's heart and circulatory system. So similar to how our hearts pump blood, heat, nutrients around our bodies, the ocean pumps water, heat, nutrients, even living things all around the world. Um, it has a huge influence on heat transfer and weather patterns. And um, to, be, to think about it as, as far as how it affects socioeconomic factors, um, the blue economy or the ocean is worth trillions around the world. Billions of people rely on the ocean for food, for jobs, um, for cultural heritage. There's also an intrinsic 
value to the ocean for many people, societies, um, around the value of biodiversity or ecosystem health for the sake of biodiversity or ecosystem health. It's not just all about how it serves humans. But um, at the aquarium, we believe that oceans are vital to humanity. And what does that mean? Well, the concept of humans and oceans thriving together is something we talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, we believe that the ocean is vital for human use and it definitely has to be safeguarded for future generations. Um, and while it's hugely valuable for humanity, it means it's our duty to ensure it's used responsibly. So with moderation and minimal collateral impacts, um, it's also, as I mentioned, not just about use, it's also about the intrinsic value of the ocean. Uh, but there are some really interesting facts around what the ocean does contribute to our planet's ecosystem. Uh, you mentioned the oxygen production. So one out of every two breaths we take come from the oxygen produced by plants in the ocean. From a biodiversity point of view, um, 50 to 80% of life on Earth exists in the ocean. There's somewhere between, and this is a pretty broad estimate, but 500,000 to 10 million marine species with up to 2,000 new species described every year. And as molecular technology is advanced, so too is our ability to quickly distinguish between species. We talk a lot about the effects on, on climate change that the ocean has. Um, the ocean is virtually, is literally a, a carbon sink. Um, you might have heard of the term blue carbon. Mm -hmm. And the ocean sequesters a huge proportion of the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Um, also, it hosts many of the potential climate energy solutions that we have. So, for example, renewable energy installations like offshore wind could be a real key in terms of reducing our carbon footprint. Um, around coastal protection, it buffers damage from flooding, erosion, storms. Um, and it, it's just a vital interface for everything we do. Um, around the human part and where the human-ocean connection comes into play, uh, food security is a big one, as well as food, food safety. Uh, roughly 3 billion or greater than 3 billion people rely on the ocean for their primary source of protein. Livelihoods, as I mentioned before, one in three people worldwide rely on the ocean for their livelihoods. And many things from cosmetics to um, biomedical solutions to cure diseases and different human conditions arise from the sea um, and many consumer products and of course recreation. We love to spend time on the water both whether it's diving or fishing or boating. Um, it's, a, it's an area that we escape and we find joy and beauty so there's a psychological kind of component to that and uplifting aspect of oceans. So that's a lot but I mean the oceans the bottom line is that the oceans are vital to our planet, to our ecosystems, to people. And I think that point goes un, uh, underemphasized. Uh, we often don't think about the oceans as in terms of how pivotal they are for people. Yeah, um, I think also SGG 14 highlights the importance of what you just said and how the ocean's very impactful on our ecosystem, but also on humans and the people and how we live as well. And so focusing on SDG 14, one of the goals that it highlights is by 2020 to manage and protect marine ecosystems for restoration in order to achieve healthy and productive oceans. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the current state of our oceans and marine sustainability and where we are in terms of ocean sustainability? Sure. Um, yeah, and I believe SDG talks about a 10% overall protection in the oceans by 2020. And to kind of build on that, there have been other campaigns that have started. The aquarium recently stood up behind a campaign called uh, the 30 by 30, which is not specific to the ocean. It's really about 
wild lands and protecting 30% of our um, wild habitats by the year 2030. Um, so in terms of the 10% target for 2020, we are above 7% in terms of how much of the ocean we do protect. And there's a lot of reason for optimism. I think very often we hear about, and we'll get to this, uh, I think hopefully we can talk about this a little later, there's, there tends to be a doom and gloom outlook on the ocean, but there's a lot of really positive things going on and a lot of uh, multi-nation, um, even big business, big industry effort and attention around safeguarding the oceans. And that's a really, really great sign. A lot of industry groups are becoming more and more involved in the need to, to better safeguard the ocean. But there's, there's certainly um, impacts. You know, you have sort of the long um, lasting pressures on the ocean that, that still persist like fishing and development and industrialization of the ocean has increased, ocean use has increased. Um, we talk a little bit about um, Stellwagen Bank right here um, off, off our coast and the, the bank, the sanctuary uh, recently released a condition report talking about the increased use of the sanctuary. And I think that's indicative of the entire ocean. Um, you're seeing a lot more use and with more use comes more degradation. And then you throw climate change on top of that um, and we're seeing effects on many systems and species. Um, we often talk about coral reefs. Um, the World Heritage Marine Program, I think, designated that 25 of the 29 uh, coral habitats that are protected around the world are showing or have shown signs of bleaching um, due to effects from climate change and other human uh, introductions or disturbances. And, um, you know, we have done a lot to degrade various habitats. Um, there have been some single index efforts, for example, there's something called the Ocean Health Index that actually the New England Aquarium was part of helping to initiate back when it started that's tried to kind of bring it all down into a group of metrics and, and ultimately one number. Um, there are, of course, pros or cons uh, in, in using a single or some sort of an index system, um, but at least provides a standardized scale. And I would say if you if you look at something like the Ocean Health Index, we'd be scoring kind of middle ground, mediocre, you know, kind of in that C minus category. Um, but we also have to be careful at not looking at these indexes for ocean health as solely how they provision for human need. There's also, as I mentioned earlier, the intrinsic value of the ocean that we need to pay attention to. So um, by and large, um, I think it's really important we recognize the positives, of which there are many, and there are many small-scale uh, anecdotes and, and successes we've had. And there are also, as I mentioned, large-scale multinational efforts um, big ocean conferences that involve many nations. And then, of course, things that affect the environment, like the Paris Climate Accord, mm -hmm. um, that although our country is not involved, unfortunately, right now, uh, many, many are. And those climate-related, hopefully positive impacts over time will help the ocean. Of course, the ocean is over 70% of the Earth's sur Earth surface and is absorbing a lot of the Earth's heat. Um, so anything that's affecting our climate is most affecting the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that you said we, ha we should have some optimism for it because often we see, uh, for a lot of it, like on social media especially, you see a lot of um, like, oh, the ocean's like warming, like global warming impacts the ocean the most. So I think it was really interesting and kind of glad that you said that there should be some optimism towards yeah. ocean. One of my heroes in, in marine science, um, Dr. Nancy Knowlton, who is a uh, well, she's a coral reef biologist who's done mm -hmm. many, many other things on works at the Smithsonian, um, likes to talk about um, ocean optimism. There was a hashtag last year, I think, or maybe it was two years ago, where um, I think she helped spur the first 
kind of conference around this concept of providing positive anecdotes and stories around the good things that are happening around the ocean, with the logic being that if we focus too much on the negative um, and it's all doom and gloom, there's going to be a sense of, of vast kind of helplessness that people have. And the, the concept that it's such a big problem that no effort is really going to help assuage the issues. So she's very, very big on celebrating the good and being positive and trying to em embrace and engage different stakeholders and different groups to try to solve this together. Because if we don't all work together, this is not a, a real solvable problem, but there are great signs that we can ultimately do it. Mm -hmm. um, so now uh, I think we'll talk a little bit about like the specifics within the SDG, um, and especially because you were talking about some of the problems within um, marine sustainability. So one problem that the SDG looks at is the problem of overfishing. So why does overfishing have an environmental impact, and how can we look to being more sustainable as kind of the average citizen? Absolutely. Uh, these, are, these are great questions. So um, yeah, there's definitely been an effect of overfishing on the ocean over the years. Um, the concept seems straightforward, right? It's if you deplete a stock by fishing too much or you fish a system beyond its ability to keep up with the rate of removal, um, you end up with a problem. You end up with a depleted resource or an affected habitat. Um, but overfishing or fishing fisheries in general globally are, are extraordinarily complex, very, very complex, and involve everything from the biological to the socioeconomic. Even animal welfare angles come into play. So. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, um, you know, in general, you know, we have some countries that have very strong fishery management systems um, relative to others. The U.S. Is a, is a good example of that. Some have minimal uh, management systems in place and some have none at all. And then, of course, beyond the exclusive economic zones of each country, there are interjurisdictional areas that are international waters that are managed by um, regional fishery, uh, fishery management organizations and bodies. Um, this is all to say that there are there's a relative range of management over these systems. And then on top of all that, even when you do have strong management, the ability to enforce that management is not always easy or straightforward or even possible. So what it really requires is cooperative efforts. And what we've seen is um, many fishing industry groups rally to try to safeguard the resources that they are fishing. Um, they know that their livelihoods depend upon the longevity of the resource and also not being overmanaged, so it hinders their ability to go out and, and make a living, whether it's in smaller coastal areas with subsistence fishing and artisanal fisheries or um, bigger industrial fisheries, where there are a lot of problems from um, illegal, un unreported, unregulated fishing and really, really um, kind of heavy duty uh, technologies that fishery technologies that can really degrade a habitat or wipe out large proportions of a stock if we're not careful. Um, so of course, ecosystems are all about balance. And if we overfish one piece, it has a cascading effect on other pieces. And that goes back to the earliest things we've, we've all kind of learned about food webs. Um, and then, you know, in addition to the effects on, on the species themselves, there's also effects on the habitat. So different fishing gears are inherently degrading on different habitats, of course. Some of them are really benign. Um, some of them can be really damaging. The one thing about um, about larger scale industrial and commercial fishery, fishing gears is that they're not only very good at capturing what they intend to catch, but they're also unfortunately really good at catching other things along the way. Um, so the incidental or, or accidental catch, also known as bycatch, is a big problem. The New England Aquarium is focused quite a bit. You mentioned uh, my work and the work of some of my colleagues focused on best practices. and. 
thinking about it from a conservation engineering point of view where we're trying to come up with ways to reduce the accidental capture of non-target species or the accidental damage to habitat or the accidental um, loss of fishing gear, which becomes derelict fishing gear or ghost gear that can really affect different species, which is a real problem. Um, so we're really focused on that. There's also the economic burden, of course, to fisheries. I think roughly $80 billion a year is lost in revenues um, when um, we've overfished catch and you, we have to then go to other places to try to, or industries have to go to other places to catch that same catch because they can no longer get it where they're accustomed to, um, as well as lost gear. And I mentioned the, the IUU, the illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing remains a big issue. Um, so there's, there's big economic concerns. I think in terms of what you know, people can do about it, this is really about empowerment of people as consumers. You know, and you've heard probably a lot about the sustainable seafood movement. And really to put that more broadly, it, it's trying to ensure that people are armed to ask the right questions and to ask those questions and to become responsible consumers about what kind of fish they're buying or getting at a restaurant. Um, where is that fish coming from? Where is it sourced? What fishery is it from? Um, how is it produced? You know, what aquaculture facility did it come from or what part of the world did it come in from? Um, engaging in those conversations broadly with friends, family, um, a, a wait staff at a restaurant or folks at, at different conferences or fora that people attend are great ways to get people more aware so that they're actually they know that they're being held accountable to something and that there are accountability measures for what we consume. And there are some standardized metrics out there or guides for consumers to make better, more informed choices, whether it's something like Seafood Watch that the Monterey Bay Aquarium puts out or other NGOs that are focusing on sustainable seafood efforts. We do a lot of that work regionally at the New England Aquarium. Um, we've been partnering, for example, with Gorton Seafood for 10 years to help ensure that they are sourcing more responsibly. Um, in fact, all of the species they now source are certified sustainable by the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, so big corporates and industries are also doing a lot to have an impact, and that's a really positive thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, often we hear a lot about uh, where our food comes from, especially with meat. There's a lot of movement about being aware of where your meat comes from, but we don't often talk about where our fish comes from or where our seafood comes from, which I think is really important. So Absolutely. I know you talked about Absolutely. That. And, you know, kind of the, the farm to table concept that we see a lot in restaurants. And there's definitely a, a traceability question and a chain of custody question that, um, you know, there's a lot more accountability these days. And there are a lot of terrific groups out there doing work to try to increase that accountability so that there's the fish that ends up on your plate can be traced back to its original source and that those fisheries can be held accountable to ensure that they're doing things with as minimum an impact as they possibly can. Yeah. So another area that SDG 14 targets is ocean acidification. And I understand that ocean acidification is the decrease of the pH of the ocean water due to the influx of CO2 in the air. How does that impact the marine environment? And what are some of the ways in which this can be prevented? Yeah, you know, ocean acidification has started to get a lot more attention in recent years. It, it used to be more traditionally the focus was more on the effects of warming on the ocean, and but acidification is is um, can have extreme uh, influences. And you know, to be clear, you know, CO two in the ocean is needed for life, obviously, and um, there there is a an acceptance, a, a, an absolute necessity for carbon dioxide to exist in the ocean, but. Um, there's also an excess amount 
through, uh, you know, the burning of fossil fuels and what we have in our atmosphere being extreme. And with that, um, there is an excess or rampant CO2 where there's too much of it or there can be too much of it in the ocean. And that starts to have a big impact. It can have an impact on, um, as I mentioned earlier, the health of coral reefs, you know, can help, can ultimately lead to bleaching events, can lead to the degradation of um, commercially, ecologically important species, you know, whether it's shellfish or oysters. Oysters are a great example. Um, and, you know, there are, are many impacts that we don't even know about yet. We're just beginning to understand and study, whether in the lab or out in the ocean, and there's a real need for more research on this, the effects of elevated CO2 levels and reduced pH on the ocean. But it's certainly, given the regulation that's so tight and important for ocean systems and species around pH, just like for us as people or any living thing, pH regulation is so critical. When you start to interfere with that in the surrounding um, aqueous medium, it's going to really, really affect the physiology and the viability of species in the ocean. So we're seeing that ex to an extreme. Um, how do we address it? Well, just like many other solutions to ocean threats, there's no single sort of um, you know magic bullet. There's real, really a mix of strategies. And I think kind of like we've talked about reducing that carbon footprint um, at a community and systems level, you know, through government, industry, corporates is, is a huge part. Um, you know, at the end of the day, better land management, um, reduced emissions, preservation and protection of wetlands, great example, where there has been historical trapping of carbon um, and that continues to trap that carbon, you know, in and around, for example, um, wetlands, seagrass communities, mangrove habitats, that's vital in terms of sequestering blue carbon. Uh, and there may be some technological sequestration methods down the line as well that can help. Um, but the good thing is that anything we're doing for our environment around reducing CO2 emissions is going to help curb um, ocean acidification. So it's not like it needs its own independent strategy. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, um, that we talk about quite often is we as humans are very innovative and we actually have many of the solutions in place already. It's actually a question of getting them to be adopted at a large enough scale where we see, where we see an impact. You said that there were already ways in which uh, it could be fixed, but you said it's a matter of implementing them. So do you mean in terms of policies or? Yeah, so that's a good question. Yeah, so um, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post um, late in uh, in 2019 by a colleague of ours at the aquarium, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who was actually advising um, Senator Warren's um, campaign for president. And they worked on something called a Blue New Deal, which was which was meant to be kind of um, a supplement to um, the, the Green New Deal in concept. And in this op-ed, I, I really like how she described it. She talked about um, that being Ayanna. She talked about uh, mitigation adaptation solutions for climate. And she was saying that they already exist, whether it's renewable energy or regenerative farming, um, reducing waste. She talked a little bit about um, electrifying transportation, some of these methods that are that are well known. Um, but it's really incumbent upon governments uh, to adopt these practices at a scale. Um, and even with something like offshore wind and the renewable sector, you know, we are seeing, we have lease sites now off New England. We're going to see growth in this domain um, in the decades ahead, but we've been slow on, on that relative to other parts of the world. So 
it's really a question of, of stepping up and implementing these technologies and accepting that there's a problem that can be solved and then figuring out ways to monetize that and to create jobs for ocean communities um, is absolutely vital because these things aren't done without people. Mm -hmm. And with that comes an economic, comes economic growth and jobs. So that's a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. It's not, they aren't mutually exclusive, but yeah, there are solutions out there for a lot of these problems. We just, we just need to be bigger and better about getting them implemented. Mm -hmm. And more on a broader topic now, what are some of the ways that our irresponsible actions, especially within uh, global warming and on land, impact uh, marine life and oceans? Sure. It's, you know, there's, there are um, some really well-known educational models around this, kind of like the upstream concept, um, where everything that we do upstream has an effect downstream. Um, and ultimately things lead to the ocean. So whether we're talking about lawn fertilizers that people put on themselves um, to toxic chemicals, agricultural runoff, cosmetic products, uh, pollution, um, filaments from your clothing, you know, in the form of, um, of synthetics and, and microplastics. And all those things are ultimately going downstream and they're affecting our estuaries, or our coastal systems, ending up in the oceans. Some of them are being bioaccumulated and then being carried through the food system or food web and up to larger species and habitats and systems. So um, it's a big issue. And at the aquarium, um, you know, we're focused on while the normal approach is to think about how individuals can change their behavior, we're ap absolutely very big, like our education department is very big on thinking about it from a systems point of view. So how can we change larger scale norms, behaviors, and systems so we take some of that individuality out of it, or at least make it much easier for individuals to adopt a certain practice, where we think about something at a broader, bigger scale. Um, some of that can be done through through networking and coalition building and standardizing different practices or um, coming up with new ways to do things that maybe people haven't thought about before and hoping that those can pick up in a market and become more trendy. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is about people's awareness that their behavior as far away from the ocean as they might be could be impacting the ocean and waking them up to that and then helping at the community level, state level, local level to try to build new strategies of information and make things easier for individuals to adopt. Yeah, you just like talked about right now people's awareness of the issue. And obviously any action that we take on this planet can impact something miles away. So we live in Boston and, you know, it's a coastal city and a lot of people usually over the summer go to like Cape Cod or um, Maine or Long Island or somewhere where there's a beach. And I feel like a lot of people in Boston associate themselves, especially local communities, associate themselves with the waterfront and such. But how do you help someone who might live in a landlocked area? So, for example, in the Midwest or in other countries where they might not be close to a body of water and local communities that might not be um, associated with bodies of water. How would you explain marine sustainability and the effects of global warming, climate change, and crisis of the ocean to someone as such? Yeah, it's another really great question. So, I mean, at the end of the day, um, we're all affected by the effects of climate change, um, the effects of, of ocean uh, the degradation of our oceans or impacts on our oceans just in, in, you know, a variety of ways. And I think you're right, of course, that people along the coasts feel these things much more acutely. 
um, much more, they are much more attuned to what's going on. They see it firsthand or even they've been personally affected by it. Um, and in some cases, those are actually really, they're surprising ways too, even for those people that do live near the coast that you wouldn't even think about. Um, my colleague at the EPA, Phil Calaruso, was telling me recently that he was down in Fort Lauderdale um, at the end of 2019, and there had been some major sewer line breaks due to salt corrosion from sea level rise. And with these sewer main breaks, um, there was over 250 million gallons of raw sewage spilling into the streets, into people's homes, um, into coastal waters, shutting down beaches. The estimated costs of remediation was something along the lines of you know, $1.4 billion to replace these faulty pipes that had been degraded by salt corrosion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, that's not something I would necessarily think of. I usually think of, of rising seas and, and just potential effects on right at the coastal interface, but something like bursting pipes and salt-based degradation on infrastructure is not typically something that you would that you would think about. So that's a really dramatic example. But yes, once you get into non-coastal areas, how do we um, how do we illustrate these issues or or increase the sense of urgency or accountability uh, investment in that? It's it's really challenging. Um, but there are effects. And I think we're starting to see people embrace and accept those effects. So whether it's, you know, floods, extreme weather events, droughts, tornadoes, uh, effects on homeowners insurance, you know, that are happening due to coastal damage, but that are also cascading and having effects on premiums in the middle of our country. I mean, those are some those are some pretty obvious ways. You know, other things are things are food security uh, and safety provisioning from, you know, from seafood and, and other things agricultural pests. So the proliferation of those pests or diseases that affect crops. Um, There was a film series several years ago, almost a decade ago, called Ocean Frontiers. That was a really um, effective um, film series that they showed a bit around farmers from Iowa who visited the Gulf of Mexico and saw firsthand some of the impacts of fertilizers on the ecosystem. And that inspired them to make changes in their own practices upstream to reduce their own um, footprint or runoff. So there is the ability to, to actually connect with people, bring them to those habitats, and then also create a um, awareness that their individual behaviors um, or things that they can do positively can come back and help them and their livelihoods in the middle of the country. So there are a lot of things that are happening. Um, at the aquarium, we're very involved in this around um, network building through our education department. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is, is talking, is the need to talk about climate change as individuals, as I mentioned earlier, um, as individuals, to friends, family, social networks, conversations, things we're noticing, what we should be worrying about. We need to shift that public perception to be more inviting and make this more interesting and more solutions oriented. And um, one of the ways we're doing that is through a network that we helped drive and initiate called the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation it trains informal science educators in zoos and aquariums um, around the country with research-driven strategies around the climate crisis and how to better activate people and make them more empowered, solutions-oriented um, people and ultimately uh, communities. So, yeah, I think it's a lot of it is around um, informing people and getting them to be part of the solution rather than for them to be hearing like they're the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there has been um, a lot of conversation about conservation and especially marine conservation um, in the recent years 
And personally, through your time working and researching, do you think that the attitude towards marine conservation and sustainability of life below water has changed within the past few years or even the last decade, um, especially because we've been talking about environmental impacts? Um, that's been a big um, issue that a lot of people are talking about, especially within politics as well. Um, and so do you think that it will continue to change greatly within the next decade? Yeah, I do. Um, I do think that the there has been, uh, not to be too hokey, a, a sea change um, around the public perception around safeguarding the ocean. I think this some of the questions you've asked me today around why is the ocean important? What can we do? What's the state of things? Um, I think people are starting to understand just how vital it is to humanity. And there's also, again, that intrinsic desire for many to want to help save it, whether it's because they're passionate about animal welfare or they've enjoyed spending their recreation on the ocean during parts of, or you know, large extents of their lives. Um, and we are seeing attitudes change, um, I think, through social media, through many of the NGOs that are out there doing heroic work to try to save the oceans and then getting their strategies and victories out there. And for us, also lifting up um, different interest groups. You know, I think very often industry groups are represented as the enemy, but in many cases, they're not. In many cases, they're actually doing heroic work, even if they have different motivations, even if it's about putting food on their families' tables. They are doing heroic work to try to save the ocean as well for different reasons. But, you know, they're part of the same um, general ethos. Um, there was a study that came out. Um, fairly recently by Cantor, which is a uh, kind of a, a global data and insights company. It was funded by the Packard Foundation around perceptions of the ocean and the environment. And based on what they, the questions they asked, at least 92% of those surveyed across six countries expressed real support for ocean protection regulations. So, you know, at least statistically in some of the studies that have been coming out, that would corroborate, you know, what I'm saying. Um, and then I think, you know, there is, again, multinational support for big initiatives that involve governments and corporates. The key now is for us to not just stop at, at establishing, say, a protected area, but working together to make sure we're safeguarding it, enforcing it. And that very often means reaching across the aisle, reaching out to different interest groups and bringing them as, into, as part of the solution and not necessarily being the enemy. But it's become trendier, more fashionable, I'd say, to, to love and enjoy and save the ocean. And um, the ocean's cool. Many of the species out there are cool. And I think, you know, whether you're um, an NGO trying to save sharks or you're creating um, skateboards uh, out of derelict fishing gear or you're a big business trying to figure out ways to, um, you know, take uh, clean the oceans or reduce input of, of pollutants, Everybody has a role to play, and we've seen so many victories, um, you know, in recent years, and so many positive examples of localized and more broad-scale uh, heroic work to safeguard the ocean. So I think the trend is let's work together to save it, and I'm I'm pretty optimistic about that. To uh, to go along with my friend Nancy Knowlton. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so those are all the questions that we had for you. Um, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Absolutely. It's my yeah. pleasure. Thank you for the good questions. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode on Life Below Water. 
And a special thank you to John Mandelman for talking to us about the issues that we face today and how we collectively can take action to reduce the damage before it becomes permanent. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will join us for our next episode, which will be out next month. See you next time.